Thank you, Charity. So that passage you may have found uh, a bit odd. Um, we've, you may notice that uh, the passages that we've been reading on Sunday mornings have been always have always been something that has to do with the text we're about to look at. Remember, we've seen in the book of John that all this all that's happening in the book of John is to show how Jesus fulfills Scripture. In this passage that we just read, it talks about how how the Lord will suddenly come into the temple. And here today we have Jesus arriving into the temple. And uh, he's going to do much what the book, what Malachi predicted that he would do. He cleanses the worship of the people. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to see how this works out, what happens. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. 
Read along with me. It says, The Passover of Jews of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And he told those who sold the and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the sign, signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before your word, to come humbled before your word. Lord, may, may we submit ourselves to what your scripture teach. May we uh, have the opportunity to, to learn more of what it is that you are teaching us in this passage. And may we uh, have humble hearts before this. In your name, amen. Amen. So every one of us have authority figures in our lives. Is that not correct? Does any, anybody not have an authority in their lives? No, every one of us answer to somebody, right? Every one of us have some kind of authority in our, in our lives. We have, in our government, we have authorities. In our jobs, we have authorities. Uh, I used to work for a company called Uncle Bob's Self-Storage. Um, when I started working at Uncle Bob's, I had already uh, worked in self-storage for three years at another company. And uh, so I, you know, I knew what I was doing. I had an idea how self-storage works, how, how all of that uh, area of business works. When I came to Uncle Bob's, though, they have a different way of doing things. When I first started, my first instinct was to say, ah, I know how to do it better than that, right? But what's the truth? The truth is Uncle Bob's way for me was the right way to do things because their company, they had authority to tell me how I ought to operate and how I ought to uh, um, manage myself as an employee of theirs. So they had that authority, they had that right to tell me how to operate, even though I had experience doing it some other way, I had to change my way to match their authority. And if I would not do so, that would show that I have a problem with authority. That shows my pride, that would show my arrogance, saying, I ought to do it better than they do anyway, and it would ultimately end up with me being fired as most of you would probably agree. If you have a problem with authority, that's generally going to lead to you losing your job. Even more important than these earthly authorities, however, we see in this passage that Jesus has authority over how we worship and over what we believe. Jesus has authority over those areas of our lives. So we'll see three things today. We'll see that Jesus has authority over our worship. Secondly, we'll see that, that Jesus has authority over what we believe, over our faith. And thirdly, we'll see how Jesus grounds that authority in the resurrection, in his own resurrection. Uh, looking back at your Bibles, if you start back up again at verse 13, it says that he was, 
It was at the Passover of the Jews. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, in the book of John, there are three Passovers, maybe four, that are listed in the, in the book of John. So uh, this is how we get the idea that Jesus' earthly ministry was, was about three years, maybe four years. It's, it's based on te- this kind of information that we get out of the text. That there's, about three, there's at least three different uh, Passovers that are mentioned in the book of John at different times uh, throughout his ministry. At this particular time, Jesus enters into the temple, part of the Passover celebration. If you were a Jew from wherever you lived, you were supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Uh, even if you lived, if you've lived a while away, you had, to, you had to make a journey and travel there. Now, it says here that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So why did they need these different people? The sellers, these people that were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, these were for the sacrifices. They sold these sacrifices at the temple in order to make it easier for travelers to sacrifice, right? If you're having to travel walking hundreds of miles, how much easier would it to be if you don't have to tra- drag some animals along with you, especially if you already have your family that you're needing, that you're needing to keep track of? Right? So they're having to make this long journey. So in order to make it easier for people, the, uh, the, the people at the temple, the authorities at the temple, uh, had, this, had, this, had this all set up where they could, they could purchase these animals. Now, it didn't always used to be in the temple. Earlier, uh, before this, uh, they used to sell it in other places, right outside the temple or on the way into the city. They would sell the sacrifices. However, at this point, they're selling it within the temple grounds in the outer court. The money changers. Why did they need money changers, right? So uh, in, 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 in Jerusalem at this time, there is a particular currency that the temple used, that the, that the people in Jerusalem used. And so people had to have the right money to pay the temple tax. There was a required tax of every, every male Jew had to pay a, a half shekel or whatever, a half, uh, and a, a certain temple tax. And some of the, the people would go in together to, to pay one shekel, but they had to have their money changed, right? They bring in their money from, from whatever other country or whatever, whatever other city that they live in. And they come into Jerusalem, they had to change their money, much like we do when we cross borders. We have to change our money. Um, so it was a very similar idea to that, so, so that they could pay the temple tax in the correct currency. Now, there's not any indication that these people were cheating anybody. You don't see that in the text. There's no, there's no, there's no, uh, Jesus doesn't make some kind of claim that these guys are, these guys are somehow cheating people, charging more than they ought to, or charging ridiculous fees uh, for, for, cha- for the money changers. However, look at what Jesus, how Jesus responds. They're in the temple. They're selling these oxen and sheep and pigeons, and these money changers are sitting there in verse 15, and making a whip of cords... He drove them out of the temple. It's a little bit different than the picture of Jesus we generally think of, right? The, the, the guy with the flowing hair and sitting with children, smiling and stuff like that. It's a little bit different picture, isn't it? This is a guy making a whip and, and knocking people out and saying, get out of here, right? He's, he, he sends the animals out. He sends the sellers out. And, and, and uh, he poured out the coins of, of the money changers and overturned their tables, that's beast mode right there, right? He, and he comes in there and he says, oh, you, you're flipping over tables and whipping people and getting them out of there. And he says to the people who are selling, selling pigeons, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So why did he cast them out? That's an interesting question. It doesn't, there's not any real indication that they were doing something, that they were cheating people. 
So this is a convenience, right? Isn't this a nice thing for them to be doing? To make it really easy to change their money, really easy to get their sacrifices. So why are they do? Why does he ch- chase them out in the first place? The text says that they had set up shop in the temple. Most likely, this is the outer court of the temple. It's also known as the court of the Gentiles. This was an area where Gentiles who had converted to Judaism were allowed to worship and pray to the Lord. By setting up their tables and selling the sacrifices in this outer court, the place where the Gentiles could worship was clogged with people and animals, making worship impossible. The Jews had effectively made it impossible for Gentiles to worship the Lord. So right there, they basically said there's a whole group of people that we're saying, nope, can't worship here. Sorry. Right? They've effectively blocked off worship. It'd be, it would be like us saying there's a certain people group that is not allowed to step in our doors because we make it too hard for any visitors to come in. Right? If we were to block up that entire front section, uh, the, the, the front area, and no visitors were able to come in, they didn't know they'd come in the back door, right? that would be the, kind of the same idea, that visitors would be like, we can't get in. It's, it's filled with stuff. We can't, we can't even get in there. Right? And only the people who know use the back door. Right? So that's essentially what's going on is they're blocking off the only place where the Gentiles were allowed to worship. Now, secondly, not only did, are they prohibiting worship uh, from, from, uh, from other, other nations, there's also an act of judgment here. Jesus' fury is unleashed against those who defile the pure worship of God. So there's something in what they are doing that is defiling true worship. Right? There's something wrong with what they're doing. It wasn't necessarily that, that, that they were robbing people. It's that they were doing this at all. That they were selling these things in the, in, in, the, in the temple at all. That they were changing money in the temple at all. That they were using God's house as a place of trade at all. And that's the problem that he has with it. That God's house, the worship that was supposed to take place in the temple, was defiled, was corrupted by the very fact that people were even using, using it for these means. We must remember that, with, that, that love and judgment are not separate ideas for Jesus. We tend, to, we tend to separate those two things, that a loving God would never judge people, that a loving God would never punish people. Yet for God, those two ideas are completely wed together. In his love for us, he punishes in his love for his people, in his love for his own glory, he punishes and he judges those who are unholy or unrighteous because of his love for his own glory. But he's also, not only is Jesus a loving savior, but he is also a righteous judge. Jesus is deeply concerned with how we worship God. Secondly, or another thing we also see in this passage is these actions of Jesus demonstrate that he is the Messiah. And so look at how the, how the disciples respond. His disciples remember that it was written, and then they're quoting, they're looking back at, at Psalm chapter 69, and they quote this here. They remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? They said, this guy is the Messiah. He's the one that, Isaiah, that Psalm 69 is talking about. He's at zeal for his house. In effect, though this is not a miracle in the terms that we would think of it, 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 although this is not a miracle, in effect, this right here, this cleansing of the temple, is the second sign that Jesus performs. Last week we talked about how 
Now, John records seven different signs that Jesus performs to prove that he is the Messiah. This right here is the second of those seven signs. Now, it's not a miracle like turning water into wine. It's not a miracle like, like raising Lazarus from the dead. Not in that sense. But in this particular instance, he is exerting his authority over the, over the worship of the temple. <clears throat> Including the temple, he shows that he has authority over the temple and the worship that takes place there. Only God would have such, could have such authority. All right, as, as Mike pointed out in the children's sermon, Jesus was not the one who was, he wasn't the manager of the temple, right? He wasn't the guy that was like, okay, now you go here, now you go here, now you go here. He's just some guy walking in. Now he happens to be the son of God. So not quite just any guy, right? But he's just, he's just as far as they know, he's not the manager. He's not their earthly boss. But he comes in and casts them all out and overturns the temple tables. Because he has authority over the temple and over the worship of the temple because he is God. That's why he's able to do this. That's why it makes sense for us to read this and say, oh, Jesus isn't, isn't being mean. He's not losing his temper. He's God. So he has every right to overthrow temple tables. He has every right to make a whip of cords and say, quit making my father's house a house of trade. He has every right and every authority to do that. Thus, Jesus shows in this passage that he is God. Not only is Psalm 69 fulfilled in the sense that Jesus had an overwhelming passion for the way we worship God, but this passion he had for right worship, for correctly worshiping God, this passion he had would ultimately lead to his own death. It would ultimately consume him in his death and resurrection. When he sacrificed him on, on the cross so that people would be able to worship the Lord the way that the Father intended, the way that the worship took place in the Garden of Eden. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, God creates humanity with one goal in mind, to worship and serve the Lord. That, that phrase in, in Genesis chapter 2 that says, and he tells Adam to work it and to keep it, the garden, that phrase is, is, should better be translated as to worship and serve the Lord. So the whole idea, what Adam and Eve were created for, was to worship the Lord. And he gave them a perfect place to do that called the Garden of Eden. Now the very first thing that happens when you get to chapter 3, the very first thing that we humans see as being a good thing to do, is the very thing we were told not to do. Right? God had given a command in the garden, you can eat any tree except for this tree. And he created all this stuff, and he said, it's all good, it's all good, it's good. The very first thing that Eve sees and says that's good is the fruit that she was told not to eat. It's the first thing she, was, she says, oh, that's good. God knows what's good for us, not us. Right? He knows how to properly be worshipped. We don't. And Jesus exerts that authority, He's, and in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, he, he restores that. And he's, he's pointing us to that direction of the right way to worship God. So what does this mean for us? What is this whole idea that Jesus has, has authority over our worship? What does it have to do with us? If you notice, we don't have a bunch of animals that we're selling. We're not doing, uh, uh, exchanging money, right? This isn't, this, is, this, this isn't about us then, right? Well, we'd be wrong, right? Jesus has absolute authority over our worship. Now, 
In, in the United States of America, we have something that is very important. We believe in the freedom for all to worship God as they choose. Okay? Now, that is a very important freedom. That is a very good freedom to have. Everybody is free to worship however they choose. You know why, that, though, that, that the government is not allowed to, should not be allowed to interfere with how we worship? Because the government doesn't have any authority over that area. However, God does. So when we come here together to worship the Lord... We should be seeking to worship the Lord the way God has commanded us to. We should be seeking to worship him in a way that matches his word. Because he does have authority to tell us how to worship, to tell us how to worship him. We don't, it's not this idea of, of, of freedom to worship that we have in the United States does not translate over to, we well, can do whatever you want, and that's okay. Right? If it feels good to you to worship that way, then do it. That's not what Scripture tells us at all. It's in, in fact, the, the, uh, the, the truth is that God does have authority over our, over our worship. We don't have free range over how we decide to worship. We can't just sing anything we want. Now, worship is not just singing. But we can't sing anything we want. We can't come up here and sing Fat Bottom Girl and think that we're worshiping the Lord. Come on, Wayne. <laughs> you can't. You, we can't. We can't sing songs that degrade women that would be against the very authority of God, that would be a direct affront on the throne of God himself and say, well, that was worship, right? I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? <laughs> I had that stuck in my head all week. I was waiting for that joke. Secondly, we can't just preach anything we want. I can't come up here and say whatever I want just so you guys are all happy and can go away smiling. But I can't come up here and say, you know what, uh, Jesus overturned some temple tables, but he wasn't talking about us. That would be false. That would be bad preaching. That would be preaching against the text. I can't come up here and say, you know what, the Holy Spirit told me this week that, that this is old and we don't need to believe this anymore. That I got something else I want to tell you that's not in the Bible, and that's, but the Holy Spirit told me this week, so that's important. I don't have that freedom. I can't just preach whatever I want to just to make sure you all go home happy. Right? We can't, um, I can't preach whatever I want. We can't practice the ordinances any way that we want. Right? The Lord's Supper and baptism, we can't just do whatever we want and call it worship. There are correct ways to worship the Lord. There are ways that Scripture has commanded us and shown us how to do the Lord's Supper. Not necessarily what form to use or whatever, but what we believe about the Lord's Supper is important. Right? The, according to Scripture, the, body and the, the, the bread and the wine, according to Scripture, there's no evidence that it changes substance somehow and becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. When Jesus says, this is my body, he's speaking metaphorically. <laughs> he's not saying that the bread somehow changes substance. To, to practice the ordinance in that way, to practice communion, to practice the Lord's Supper in that way would be false. Furthermore, with communion, to say that that, kind of, that, that ceremony somehow makes you more saved would be false. That's an unbiblical idea. About baptism, for us to say that baptism does something that Scripture does not say it does, like 
uh, the, the baptism, that when you go into that water, that's when the Holy Spirit enters you. That's not biblical. That's not in Scripture. Right? Really, you're getting wet. It's, what, it's, also, it's the faith that comes with it that makes it important. It's not the event itself. Furthermore, about baptism, there's no evidence in Scripture, zero. I can talk to you. If you want to talk to me about this, please come to me and talk to me. I'd love to share with you a deeper argument about this. But there is no evidence of Scripture for infant baptism. It's just not there. The scriptures, there's no one, no, no evidence that babies should be baptized. My son, Curtis, who is six months old, should not be baptized because he's not a believer. Believer's baptism, baptism that takes place after you become a Christian, that is the only way that baptism is biblical. Any other way is false. I know I'm speaking to Baptists, so you're all nodding your heads and things like that. I just want to tell you, I understand that, but it's, it's important. This is why we as Baptists believe this way, because Scripture says it. Any baptism that is done outside of those biblical, those biblical parameters is not true baptism. It's false baptism that leads to false worship. We can't just teach anything we want. We can't just... just you know what, let's just teach that everybody goes to heaven because that will make us feel better. We can't do that. Right? God has authority over our worship. He has authority over what we teach. He has authority over me and what I preach. He has authority because he wrote his word for us. And he gives us this book so that we might practice as best as we possibly can. Where scripture speaks to our practice, we must be obedient to his word. Worship is about the glory of God and alignment with Scripture, not about our preferences and desires. It's not there. The Bible doesn't say, well, you know, if you like this kind of work, this kind of music, then go ahead and do that. If you like that kind of music, then go ahead and do that. And then if you like hymns and you don't like, 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 like praise and worship music, then it's okay for you to go ahead and tell the praise and worship music people that they're wrong and, you know, make fun of them or whatever, or vice versa. It's not there. Now, there aren't, there are no, I don't think there's a biblical way of like what style of music to use. The worship wars concept is, is uh, I think it's, un, it's an unbiblical concept. The, the worship wars idea is, a, is an unbiblical concept. However, we should be intentional when we do make decisions on how we worship, when we do make decisions about what we do in this service, what we do as a church, we should be intentional to make sure and double check and look and say, is this biblical? Is this scriptural? Is God pleased with this? Or would God come in and overturn that table? Would God cast that practice out with a whip of cords? We'll see later why Jesus has this authority over our worship. But first, let's skip down to, this, to verse 23 and look at this, this next area of authority that Jesus has. Jesus has authority over our faith. It says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Now, if we just read that, if we just read that part, we'd be like, good news, right? Jesus is going around and lots of people believe in him. That's good. We're excited about the gospel of John. People are getting saved. That's not where it ends. Look at this. They believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, probably other miracles that he may have been doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. 
for he himself knew what was in them. These people were claiming that they believed in Jesus, but Jesus knew better. Okay, so let's exp- what's, what's going on here? What is, what's happening in this passage? What's, why is Jesus responding this way to people believing in him? We tend to have this kind of reaction. Oh, somebody prayed a prayer. They must be a Christian, right? Or somebody did this. Oh, they must be a Christian, right? They, they, said, they said they believe in Jesus, so they must be Christians, right? But Jesus doesn't respond that way. He has people who believe in him, and he says, eh, no. Right, in this, in this particular case, he does not entrust himself to them. Now, what was it about their, about, about their worship, then, that, was, that, we, uh, that, that we can see? Now, look at this. Jesus said, it says it here that Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus knows the heart of man. This tells us two things. First, that Jesus knows when faith is genuine. Second, it tells us that Jesus is God. Right? The scripture tells us that, that only God knows the mind of man. That, that, that's an attribute of God. Only God knows what's in the heart. And Jeremiah 17.10 tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. These people, they saw the signs, they saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and they believed in him. But they didn't believe in him as their savior. They believed in him as a healer. They believed in him as one through, from whom they could get something, not one to whom they would give themselves. So what does this look like for us? What does this mean for us? You may have heard of this term before, of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is a version, a, a, a perversion of the gospel that permeates the American culture. You know what? If I believe in Jesus, my business will grow. If I believe in Jesus, I'm going to make more money. If, I, if Jesus will make me more rich, Jesus will make me healthy, Jesus will make me whatever. This, this gospel is being preached in places all throughout, uh, all throughout the U.S., especially if you turn on certain channels that are, have people preaching the gospel. This is the gospel they're preaching, that you know, if you believe in Jesus, you, know, you send, us, send us $5 for this, for this certain thing, and God's going to bless you, right? We do the same thing sometimes in our own churches when we talk about tithing, right? If you tithe, God will, God will bless you back doublefold. What if he doesn't? Then did God not come up? Did God not fulfill his promise? No. We don't tithe so that we can get something back from God. We tithe because it's worship. Right? We tithe because it reflects our priorities in worship. We don't, we don't uh, believe in Jesus just because he's going to heal us or just because we can get something from him. We believe in him because of who he is, because he is Lord. We can't just believe whatever we want, right? I hear this all the time um, being in, in ministry and being uh, in, uh, with what I'm doing in my schooling. You hear people say, well, you know, what I believe is what I believe and what you believe is what you believe and that's all okay, right? Where as long as, as long as we're all believing something, it's good, right? That's not true. These people believe in Jesus. What does he say? No. I'm not even going to entrust myself to them. I can't. I don't trust them. I know that they have a. This isn't real. It's not genuine faith. What about something like the doctrine of the Trinity? If you believe, if you don't believe in the Trinity, can you be a Christian? No. Amen. Amen. If you reject the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm sorry, but 
Jesus would do the same thing. He said, you can say you believe in me all you want, but you're rejecting a basic truth about me. There is many early Christians, early Christians, who came up with these different ideas on how to interpret Jesus. And true believers, every time, said, nope, that's not true. Nope, that's not true. Nope, that's not true. Why? Because they believe the scriptures. They believe what scripture reveals about who Jesus is, and that's what they place their faith in. Jesus has authority over what we believe. We can't just believe whatever we want to. Um, I want to, uh, let's, let's move on here then. We'll look at how, Je- well, how we know or why Jesus has authority. Why, why does Jesus have this authority over our worship and over what we believe? Going back up here, we, we see the, how the Jews respond to Jesus clearing out the temple, the temple. And they say, they ask him, they say, Jesus, show us a sign. Prove it. How do you have this authority? Now, what did they just miss? They just showed them that he has the authority by clearing out the temple table, by clearing out the temple, right? He just showed them the sign that they were looking for. And yet they say, show us a sign. Do some kind of miracle. Do something for us. Right? Prove it. And what does Jesus say here? It gets a little bit sarcastic, right? It's, it's, it's not really sarcastic. It's prophecy. He's, he's show, saying something about himself. But instead of, of dealing with them directly, he, he kind of takes an indirect route. And he says, he says um, basically, you want to prove it? Here it is. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, again, this is a massive stone structure. Okay? The blocks on this temple, some of the blocks were the size of our walls. Okay? Big stone blocks making up this temple. Okay? It's not going to take three days, right? And that's exactly the point. They're, th- they're thinking, you're nuts. We're going to destroy it in three days? Look, that's even exactly how they respond. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this. Right? We've been working on this project for 46 years. And the whole complex isn't even done yet. Right, the, the, at this point in, 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 uh, in history, the, the main, uh, what had happened is in, in, I can't remember what year it was, B.C., Herod the Great had started this project to appease the Jewish people in rebuilding the temple. Now, at the, by this point, the inner structure of the temple, the main temple part, was, was completed, but the rest of the complex, the outer court, things like that, were still under construction. In fact, it would be another 30 years after this before the whole thing was completely finished, Right? However, as we look at this, um, so when Jesus makes this claim that he's going to destroy it in th- in, or that they should destroy it in three days or that he's going to destroy it in three days or whatever it is, you know, when he says destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, they think, you're nuts. Right? They say, how are you going to do this? It took us 46 years to build this and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is where John, I love these parts where, where John comes in and does comments on it. Like, this all, he explains all this happens, and then he gives his own commentary on it. Remember, John is writing in about 90-something A.D., right? So he's writing probably about 60 years after all this took place. And he's saying, yeah, remember that? And at that time, we had no clue. Right? Look at what he says here. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So right here, you see here uh, exactly how, how the disciples respond. Like when, when they first heard this, they probably were just as confused. Like 46 years it took us to 
It's three days? What are you talking about? It's going to take you three days to rebuild the thing? Um, okay, you know, um, and, but, it's, but after he rose from the dead, they realized that he was speaking about his own body, right? And his resurrection, which took place three days after the crucifixion. When Jesus, now look at look what happens here. It says, they, then they believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, their trust in scripture was deepened. Now, it's true that they experienced seeing the resurrection, but their own witness of the resurrection gave them a deeper love and trust in the text of the scriptures. And we're not certain what exact text of scripture that, that they're talking about here. And I don't want to speculate. I don't want to you know, give you like, hey, it could be this verse, it could be this verse. I don't want to do that today. However, we can see here that the resurrection event drove the disciples to believe in the scriptures. Because the scriptures... The Old Testament teach the gospel. That's why. Paul in 1 Corinthians makes a similar statement. He says that we believe that or he says, this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then, it's only then that Paul goes on to list experience of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. But first of all, first and foremost for Paul, it was scripture that led him to believe in the resurrection. For the disciples, it was first and foremost scripture that they had more faith in because of the resurrection. If we're going to utilize our experience as a grounding in belief, we must be certain that our experience matches with scripture. People will often say that there may be something that they find or that they're reading their Bibles and the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Right? And they say, oh, you know, the Holy Spirit just really taught me this. I want to tell you right now, if, if whatever they say next does not match with Scripture, that was not the Holy Spirit who told them. It wasn't. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Anything that the Holy Spirit teaches us will be found in the Scriptures. Or at least is going to match with the theology that is taught in the Scriptures. Right? So our experience should not trump Scripture. Our beliefs are, uh, and, and what our, 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 our beliefs should not be grounded in our experience, but rather our beliefs should be grounded in Scripture. Often we do the opposite. We have experiences in life that either cause us to stop believing a passage of Scripture or cause us to reinterpret it in order to fit our experience. Hell, Right? Hell can't be real. I don't think God would do that. I really don't feel like God would do that. So hell must not be real. I mean, that's, that can't be what Scripture is talking about. What a ridiculous claim. Essentially, that says, you know what? I think I'm God, and I get the opportunity to interpret Scripture however I want to. And if I don't like the idea of hell, I don't need to believe it. What about those who've never heard? People love to use this argument all the time. What about the person who's in such and such a country and never heard the gospel? What about them? Scriptures are clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If someone in a foreign country who's never heard the gospel does not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, they're not saved. They don't get to go to heaven just because we don't think that that's fair. 
Right? And I could go on about that particular thought for one. We, we'd like to believe that these people are absolutely innocent. As we see in Scripture, there's nobody that's innocent. It's not true. Nobody's innocent. Well, they haven't heard the gospel. Well, why haven't you gone and tell, told them? Right? Isn't that why we're commanded to go to the ends of the world to preach the gospel? That's our task. It's not that God's a mean guy. It's because he gave that task to us. You do it. If you're concerned about the people who've never heard, let me tell you, go and preach the gospel. When we look at passages about the cost of following Christ, Jesus says things like, give up all you have and follow me. Well, he was kidding about that, right? He meant be willing to give up all that you have and follow me. Did he? When he says, leave your father and mother and follow me, he was kidding about that, right? Was he? Or was Jesus serious? And he calls for radical obedience. Or the command to share the gospel. Well, that wasn't to me. I don't have the gift of evangelism. God didn't gift me for that. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't quit me. That's not my job. My job isn't to share the gospel with people. I, I've read the Bible. I don't see there being any exclusion clauses. right? Go and share the gospel unless, you know, I don't want you, unless you're not called to do that. It's not there. The calling is clear. Go, take the gospel to all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. We can't reinterpret God's word to fit our own, to fit our own needs. So when asked for a sign about, the, about his authority, Jesus points people to the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave positive proof that he has authority over our worship and over our beliefs. We must submit to him. We must submit ourselves to the text of scripture in, the areas, in, the, in all areas of faith and worship. This is what we're called to be obedient to. This is what we're called to submit ourselves to. What we believe must be founded in the scriptures and how we worship must be found in the scriptures or at least not contradict the scriptures. Amen. Must be found here. We have seen that Jesus has authority in these two major areas of our lives. Will we submit to Jesus' authority or in our pride and arrogance will we rebel against his authority over our worship? and over our beliefs. As we enter into this time of invitation, I want to ask you, if you're here today, you've, you've never believed the gospel, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you've never given Him your life, let me encourage you to do that during this time of invitation. Let me ask you as well, church member, if you're here and, and there's an area of your life, there's some facet of your life where you have not submitted your, that aspect of your life to Christ. You have not submitted that to Jesus. You have maybe been finding ways to worship yourself in choosing how you worship and choosing how you believe. Let me encourage you, maybe even use this time in your seat or you can use these stairs as an altar to, to, to give those areas back to God, to, to spend some time with Him. If you're here today and, and, uh, and you're looking for a church home and you want to be at a place that loves God and seeks to, seeks to be obedient to His Word, guys, I, I, I pray that we are that church. And if, if that's something that you would like to do today, come talk to me. I'd love to share with you how, uh, how you can become a member of our church. Let me pray for you guys.